Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 15. I'm your host, Jonah Bennett, and I'm joined by Ash Milton. Hey, guys. And as always, Wolf Tyvee. Yep, here I am. And we've got, as as always, another special guest here. This time it's uh, Glenn Weil. He is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft and founder and a board member of the Radical Exchange Foundation, uh, which we'll discuss more this this podcast episode. Uh, he received his PhD from, from Princeton in 2008 and uh, is the author, along with Eric Posner, of Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Glenn, thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's get let's get into that question of the week. Uh, you know, we've been piled up with a lot of mail here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna choose one that just happens to be to be relevant to the topic here at hand, and and it's one of the mechanisms we'll be discussing today, which is cost, the common ownership self-assessed tax. So, uh, which can, which can be used for. Uh, large per, uh, property purchases. And so I guess the question here is, what would you use that mechanism to purchase property for? What infrastructure project uh, would you do a mass land grab for? I'm going to uh, dream Ash, big here, guys. <laughs> Ash, let's uh, start with you. All right. All right. So uh, now th this is obviously something I am only pursuing for the greater good of society. And it's a high-speed rail from Toronto to San Francisco. Uh, I think these are two strategic cities to connect. Uh, I'm, I'm told, uh, I was going to say Hyperloop originally, but I'm told by Wolf, our, our engineer specialist here, that uh, the, the high-speed rail would be just as good, so I'm going to be a pragmatist. Well, I, I think airplanes would be better, actually. I just think that uh, Hyperloop is as yet. You have forgotten what it's like to fly in Canada, my friend. Okay, Wolf, Wolf, go ahead. Okay, well, well my answer is a little bit unorthodox. I would... Um, seize the land currently used for roads uh, and turn it into bike lanes. I guess this doesn't really require cost because the state already owns the roads, but uh, I, I think we should turn the roads into bike lanes and greenways. I guess I'm going to give a more orthodox answer than that. Uh, what I would do is is make sure we seize enough land in, or, or purchase enough land in every every major U.S. city to make sure we, we have a, a very large alien sanctuary uh, to sort of mimic the conditions on on the various uh, stars and planets out there for our friends. Excellent. For when they're when they're liberated, when, uh, when I Bernie gather that Area Fifty One is is uh, having some trouble, and when Bernie becomes president, that's right. Okay, Glenn, you're up. Um, so one of my favorite artists is a guy named Dionisio Gonzalez, and he makes these sort of altered images of cities and architecture, and he has. One where there's like a in the air walkway around the like 50th or 60th floor winding through different skyscrapers in New York. And I want to see that happen. This is East Coast uh, preference again. All right, Ash, take it away. I will. All right. So um, I would be remiss uh, not to start this podcast uh, or to start this podcast rather without mentioning the event that we had um, weekend before last in Toronto. Uh, so the Governance Futures and Mixer was a joint be event between Palladium Magazine and Radical Exchange. Um, I co-organized that with Ryan Kurana, who was representing Radi the Radical Exchange side. It was a fantastic event, 30-something uh, people from multiple sectors coming, talking about the future of governance, telling us what they're working on. 
um, and we, we got a chance there to really see some of the real applications of some of these more abstract topics and some of what we're going to be discussing on the show today. So I uh, just wanted to plug that there. Uh, Glenn, of course, on the board of Radical Exchange and author of Radical Markets. So Glenn, why don't you tell us a bit about the book, uh, what you're doing and why you think it's important right now? So the book was an attempt to basically find ways to use much bolder visions of what markets are actually like to implement ideas that are much closer, most closely associated with socialism, which is usually thought of as the opposite of markets. So it was an attempt to sort of um, show how truly free markets would lead to socialism and how true socialism would require free markets, um, an attempt to bridge a lot of left-right divides. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything in the book uh, anymore. I'm, in fact, about to write a critique of it. Uh, there are a lot of weaknesses of it. It, I think, started with a economist perspective and really showed some bold things that could come out of that. I think ultimately those things ended up sort of undermining a lot of the foundations of the book itself. So it was a good point of departure. And I think there's a lot of great practical technologies that came out of it. And I think it's just uh, one step. And what Radical Exchange is now trying to do is both, you know, make good use of those technologies in the context of a social movement that can help create widespread ownership and legitimacy for those ideas and move beyond those ideas using all of the input and insights we've gotten from the broad set of people who've gotten engaged in making this stuff part, part of their lives. And in the book, um, I mean, the, the book itself, Radical Markets, and use that term radical, and I think a quite specific way. Um, in the book, you discuss some of your intellectual influences. Uh, we have Henry George pops up, uh, I think Walras has mentioned, um, a number of economists who uh, maybe took some of these ideas, which we could consider economically liberal, but came out of what could be called a progressive tradition, a tradition that was even friendly to socialism. Can you talk a bit about the tra general tradition of um, political thinking that you're coming from here and some of those influences? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Henry George, uh, even John Stuart Mill, Leon Walras, um, all of these folks on the one hand were big believers in the free market traditions of political economy. On the other hand, they thought that those traditions um, to really work w required sweeping away in a much more profound way than sort of the liberal revolutions of the 19th century did, the vestiges of feudalism. They believed that monopolistic ownership of land was one element of that. Um, Noam Chomsky once said that he thought uh, anarcho-communism was the true application of classically liberal principles to modern complex societies. And in many ways, these thinkers were in that direction. They thought that the notion of democratic control over large-scale um, production was necessary in order to have truly free markets. So, um, and they thought that the decentralized processes of markets were the only real way to have socialism because otherwise you'd end up, as you 
did uh, in many places with top-down bureaucratic control that was not very different from the concentrated power of capitalism. Um, and that tradition was really a very vital one, not just in theory, but in policy. Um, George Clemenceau uh, led a party called the Party of the Radical Left, which was very much uh, in this tradition in France. And, you know, uh, uh, Henry, uh, David Lloyd George um, and Winston Churchill cut their teeth fighting for Henry George's ideas in the UK. Uh, the word progressive actually uh, arguably comes from the title of Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. And he was, in many ways, the founder of the modern American labor political movement. So, um, yes, in many, in many ways, uh, these ideas were really core to shaping history, but they got left behind in the Cold War, where everything became capitalism versus communism. I think uh, something interesting to bring up here, because this idea that um, markets and and the phenomenon of capitalism in some way pave the way to more socialistic forms of society has, you know, people like Schumpeter come to mind, Alexander Kozhev, I think, talked about this. There's a uh, tendency in some of those discussions um, that saw, for example, both the U.S. and the USSR kind of converging on this very bureaucratic form of life to see that as a negative in the sense that you have this dynamic period of capitalism and then there's sort of a managerialism and a stagnation that sets in. I gather you don't quite take that opinion. You actually see um, the the tools that you're uh, advising here that can pave that road as encouraging dynamism and innovation. Um, could you maybe touch on that a bit? Yeah, I think what you're raising is a great point, um, that the convergence of uh, socialism and capitalism in these hierarchical forms of organization can really undermine uh, dynamism. And I actually agree with that. And I think that the argument of these thinkers is that there's an alternative, which combines the best of markets with the best of common ownership to create a much more dynamic setting. And it's actually precisely the opposite of the convergence that you're describing. So if you have one convergence on one pole, you have to have sort of another convergence on another pole um, where, you know, the most concentrated and hierarchical elements make the system more rigid in one case, whereas using the uh, decentralized tendencies of markets together with um, the c capacity of democracy in its most flexible forms to support that um, takes you in an opposite direction. So, um, yes, I don't think the left or the right in either of these scenarios, either the pessimistic or the optimistic one, is a very useful frame. Instead, I think it has to do with what do we have to do to support um, that sort of a dynamic, uh, emergent, recombining, innovative um, forms of diverse social life. And you do discuss in the book that for you, the market is important as uh, a sort of calculation mechanism. Uh, I think you obviously don't agree with some of the more stringent and, say, libertarian-leaning applications of things like the calculation problem. But uh, I, I think you quite clearly see markets as an important way of um, how 
actors in an economic sense can interact is very interesting for me because I, I did have um, I, I did study econ in undergrad. Uh, and I think the way this almost more historical or sociological way of discussing markets is quite different from what most people and at least most Anglosphere economics programs are learning. Um, the market is actually a social mechanism. Um, however, you you know, I, I, I think listeners will be interested in this notion of markets um, and some of the ideas that the socialists had. You know, within some of the current debates, you know, the the idea of what is the role of planning in an economy um, is is quite central uh, when things like the Green New Deal are being discussed. Um, there, there's this idea that uh, we need to introduce a much more centralized form of planning uh, through mission oriented policies, policies and so on. I know you've written previously on why you're critical of some of that um tendency as well um so i i'm interested if, if you could touch on that but also um do you think that in the future we actually will get to a more coordinated form of economic life and i'm thinking here of the way that private companies are in fact using things like predictive technologies um, to better plan their own business practices. Amazon, of course, some of the big tech companies, but uh, even some of the more traditional larger corporations are, in essence, creating these semi-planned or at least coordinated economies uh, within the context of their businesses and their customer bases on a quite large scale. Um, so that, that general I, idea of how coordination works and its interrelationship with the marketplace um, if you could uh, touch on that. Yeah, so that's a great question. And again, I think it frames, as you were saying previously, two r routes for convergence between markets and socialism. One based on um, a emphasis on artificial intelligence, an emphasis on large corporations or large governments, whether you know you're talking about the West or China, um, setting up artificial intelligence systems designed by a relatively small elite that then plan the economy for everyone else. And everyone else is just providing sort of relatively thin data inputs into that system. Or a system that richly involves every citizen in the process of participating in creating new forms of culture that is not a sort of closed, formalized system, but uh, tries to use formal elements to account for the richness of social life and to build greater and growing diversity and complexity. Um, and I think that that distinction is really the key question. And I think both of those visions are highly technological. They both rely heavily on technology. It's a question of what type of technology we want. Do we want technology to be the basis of a um, perfectionist, totalitarian, ultimately, I think, uh, even if it's sort of consented to, vision of centralized authority? Or do we want um, technology to enable us to have a flourishing of diverse and interweaving communities that are constantly 
making richer and more complex um, the ways in which uh, social life is organized. And I, I would call the second vision pluralistic. Um, you know, and the first vision is, is sort of technocratic. And um, I think that that's one of the great questions of our time. I, and um, I think to this point, so much of technology has been focused on this technocratic vision. Um, and so little has pursued this pluralistic vision that I think many of us think the latter will fall behind. Um, but I think ultimately the latter is more robust and productive. And so if we're able to build the technologies and in particular the social and organizational technologies that we need to enable that, um, I think it can ultimately win out. So I, I have a comment on the sort of technological angle, why the technology does seem to support the more technocratic uh, mode of organization. Um, and I'd be curious to kind of get your opinion on this. So basically, technology is, is, is means, right? It's the ability to get things done. It's the ability to scale up effort uh, to, to sort of larger and larger domains. Um, and so as, as our ability to do things increases that, uh, with, through technology, that increases um, the reach of power as well. At the same time, in fact, almost by definition, uh, if you scale up means, uh, well, to the extent that there's sort of like any any competing interests, someone is going to be able to scale their interests uh, uh, up to to a much larger degree than than sort of before that technological improvement. And so there's this argument that as technology um, sort of increases in its power to, to scale up, um, more concentrated operations. It, we're likely to see sort of society become more centralized, more technocratic and so on. And so this is sort of like, uh, it's, it's, it's the argument is, I guess, is attempting to explain that, that technocratic push in technology, just in terms of the fundamental nature of technology as as the means by which we get things done rather than say like oh we have developed these technologies instead of those technologies and i'm curious like how much is it possible uh to sort of change that or reimagine that in a way that can involve that sort of uh richer social life that is um properly utilizing the decentralized resources that we have, I guess is what I would say. Um, I, I, so I'm just curious about, about your thoughts on, on that argument that technology kind of inherently favors centralization because it's a scaling of means. Yeah. I, I think I used to be sympathetic to that. Um, and I think my perspective has shifted somewhat and it was really Jaron Lanier who shifted my perspective on this. He's a, one of the creators of virtual reality and a, a great critic of artificial intelligence, even as a concept. Um, and he distinguishes, maybe not quite in these words, but he distinguishes between two types of technology, what he calls um, high fidelity. Well, I don't even know if these are his words. These are my words for w what he describes, but um, high fidelity versus high powered technology. 
So um, like one way to think about this is, you know, imagine that you have a radio and you can make it reach, you know, further and further. You can make it cheaper and cheaper or you can invent television. Now, television is not actually really more powerful than radio. It is just higher fidelity. It captures more aspects of what life is like than radio did. Um, and you can also invent um, things that go beyond television because, in fact, television flattens our own understanding of our vision. It's not even really very accurate to call it television because you're not really seeing at a distance. What you're doing is taking images at a distance. But images are a very thin way of understanding our sensory perception. We actually have a very interactive relationship between our eyes and the environment around them. Um, so uh, all technology flattens our sense of our own experience. And you can improve technology either by making it more powerful, allowing it to scale more, making it cheaper, or by uh, making it more able to capture the richness of the life that it's meant to be a model of. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, that latter course can, in fact, create much more collective power, ultimately. Yeah. So because, because, but it doesn't create more power for a single narrow elite. Um, it only creates power through the way in which it involves many people. So um, I, yeah. if I can like try to concretize this, uh, the sort of like artificial intelligence technocratic vision is sort of best, uh, best represented by, uh, you know, you imagine this, this very centralized big database system that captures all the data, does some huge centralized artificial intelligence calculation on the data and, and then goes out and like manages all the variables that it has control of. Uh, to, to sort of achieve something and like all the dynamism is contained within the system. And then the alternative, which I think what you're talking about is maybe something a little bit more like uh, social media, for example, where it's, it's providing a platform for like a certain shape of exchange of ideas and effort by many actors. Um, and, you know, like Twitter, for example, where, where, you know, many people are able to talk to each other and organize and, and um, share ideas and, and do various things um, in a sort of decentralized way, even though like the, the underlying technology is centralized, but, but kind of what's happening is much more decentralized than the central artificial intelligence kind of vision. So yeah, and I think I think you can I go even more in that it. direction. You know, yeah, no, exactly. I think I think ultimately Twitter does have very large elements of influence by the artificial intelligence imaginary, right. and I think that there are other in, in the algorithmic control, of, yeah, of trending exactly. and so on, yeah, right. And I think that um, we can imagine systems that are even more the way that the internet was originally imagined. Right. Where... I, I, have you heard of Urbit? Like Urbit is kind of a vision that I that I would say is like in this direction. It's or it's attempting to be in that direction. I know a lot about Urbit. I am not a fan. Um, okay. I think it has profound problems, and that it's actually profoundly evil in many ways. Um, and yes, relative to the artificial intelligence vision, I think it has some appealing features. Uh, and I think it's profoundly problematic huh. so yeah i know i've just heard yeah. it described in these terms before where it, it is more of that like attempting to decentralize social media 
Mm. I'd actually like to press a bit on the, the, the two forms of innovation that you discussed there, the, the sort of marginal and technocratic versus ones that actually expand the areas of life that technology can uh, reflect and encompass. So you were tweeting recently about um, some of the fundamental, uh, I guess, aspects of your framework that you're wanting to update. And one of the ones you touched on was... Um, moving away from this premise of like the single entrepreneur with asymmetric information or you know special brilliance or something along those lines uh versus the the theoretical central planner um and i i gather that and and correct me if i'm wrong um you'd want to see that kind of innovation even these more paradigm changing forms of inform of innovation rather as being socially embedded and cooperative um when it comes to historic um thing, things like large public investment plans um the, the actual historical mission-oriented policies that say someone like mazukato touches on um it, it seems like part of the idea there was that you're able to have high risk high reward innovation going on and so, you know, they would hire people. You look at the Manhattan Project, for example, they would hire people or groups of people and give them the opportunity to take risks. Um, and now, I, I don't see necessarily a clear break there between a, a particular individual or set of individuals who happen to be extremely good at what they do versus the fact that there is, in fact, a social aspect here. Um a, any kind of public investment like that is the result of uh, of, of a socialized costs and profits for one, but also um, an, an element of planning that goes beyond whatever those individuals are working on. Could you um, maybe highlight a bit why you think that distinction is so important? Um, thanks. So uh, the way I think about it, um, and I don't know if this answers your question, so you'll have to let me know, sure. is that technocratic and technical innovation is critical. I mean, it's I'm a technologist. It's what I'm all about. And it has to understand itself in a certain relationship to broader democratic discourse or it becomes very dangerous. Um, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about two aspects of technical systems one is their sort of optimality or power. Another is their fidelity. But there's a third critical aspect, which is what I would call their legibility. The extent to which they are able to communicate how they work, their limits, and their failure modes, and their, the dangers of them to a broad public in a way that allows people to recombine them and reuse them in productive ways. Um, and I think that a major um, danger of existing technocracy is that a lot of it is cloistered within very elite and particular environments and doesn't think of itself as a component um, to be reused by different social elements that may actually know things that the designers don't know. Yeah, this but instead is, as a end solution. Th this um, is this is a really interesting point. And, and is that related to like the original vision of open source where people would be able to kind of like actually understand how their software worked and, and remix it and, and redesign it as, as necessary? 
as yeah. opposed to like the very centralized uh, sort of proprietary form of development that, that technology often falls into. Yeah, and and I'm not sure open source has really succeeded in that goal. Yeah, no, I don't because think I don't it think it thought enough about the semiotics of o open accessibility as opposed to just the technical open standard. You know what I so, mean? So what do you mean by that? I, I'm curious, like, because, yeah, there's this sort of big attempt to actually make technology accessible in that way. Um, and and it doesn't seem to have worked uh, in, in the way that I would sort of, like, envision it working. And I'm curious, like, uh, sort of for more, more about your actual diagnosis of that. Well, I think the key issue is that um, legibility, explicability, simplicity are inherently not totally formalizable concepts. They're concepts right. that rely on, you know, the frameworks of fields like sociology and literature and art. And um, the disdain with which many in the technocratic class hold that those forms of relating to the world, mm -hmm. I think, um, becomes a huge impediment to them actually achieving those goals that they might want to achieve. So, so concretely, like, what does that look like in terms of well, particular Apple. choices in software? Products? You know, you look at Apple versus Microsoft in their early right. years, and you know, Apple always viewed the communicative aspects of their technologies on a par with the um, engineering aspects of them. Uh -huh. um, and I think as a result, the actual engineering value of the Apple systems ended up being much greater until they were, of course, copied and, you know, incorporated into other things. Um, uh, because it just turns out that the aggregate ability set of a broad public is much greater than any small group of engineers. So if you build a system that manages to communicate clearly and to therefore allow itself to be reused and redeployed, um, it offers much greater range for more information and talent to be harnessed. So, you, so there you're talking about like um, the company originally having a more design focused maybe or like or design literate uh approach well, the to problem things. is design means a lot of different things right yeah I mean, yeah so i uh, i guess so I, I don't have a good word for this but but they had a certain approach that allowed the software to be more communicative with with the users which allowed then uh are you saying like a feedback of of the information about how people use it to kind of feedback into into a, a better system somehow. So so I, I l l let me jump in here. I I think that the best way to move from here will be to actually get into um, two of the policies of the book because this has been an extremely good overview. I think of some of the the issues that are driving uh, the topics being covered in the Radical Markets book. Um, but uh, as we'll see, the the policies being proposed are looking at this in a fairly system level way. So I, I think we should turn to those discussions now. The first one, um, the first policy we'll discuss is, uh, as Joan had mentioned, I think the common ownership self-assessed tax or the cost. Uh, so Glenn, this is your approach to looking at the uh, issue of private property um, and in particular, the way that property can uh, be used in monopolistic ways, this tension where property on the one hand 
um, can incentivize productivity, but on the other hand can be used in order to uh, do things like rent-seeking. You use the example of where landowners can hold out on purchase of their property for prices far above what they would otherwise sell at in a normal marketplace. Um, could you maybe give an overview of the cost mechanism? And then I think as we move into that discussion, uh, a lot of these issues we've touched on in the introduction are going to become a lot more concretized. Absolutely. So the, the cost is a new um, social technology based on the idea that rather than conceptualizing ownership as an absolute thing that belongs to a single owner at a time, instead it is conceptualized as a shared right, um, which the current possessor exercises in exchange for paying for the degree to which he exercises that. So, um, right, you know, in a standard imaginary of, you know, private property, you buy something, you can own it, you can exclude anyone from it, you can do whatever you want with it. Um, Use us and abuse us is the, you know, Latin. Uh, And um, you'd pay nothing for that other than perhaps some taxes that the state levies based on uh, value that it determines. Now, uh, in, in the cost system, or what we're now calling SALSA, um, self-assessed licenses sold by auction, um, you instead uh, choose your own value for that property, but it's a value at which you're willing to sell it and to any comer, and you pay a tax on that self-assessed value. So what that effectively does is says, look, the right that you have to exclude people from this land or whatever it is, is not unconditional. It's a right that you're paying for. And the more rigorously you want to exert that right to keep other people off, the more you should have to pay for that right. So let's um, give, in the book, uh, I think, which is quite helpful, you give pretty concrete examples. So for the benefit of listeners, um, let me just give an example here. Um, You could, for example, and correct me on on anything that uh, needs correcting on here, you could own a plot of land, for example, and uh, you would be willing to part from that land, uh, all else equal, for $30,000. And what you suggest, uh, first you point out abuses of this, right? So maybe if you know a large company is buying um, several plots of land on the street, you can hold out for a much higher price than that. uh, And and this can uh, undermine productivity. Um, What you do instead is you report that self-assessed value, that price that you would sell for, uh, and then you pay a tax on that. And the the reason, uh, let, let me clarify this for listeners as well, the idea here is about incentives, right? One of these very fundamental economic building blocks. Um, if you report too low in order to try and avoid the tax of, say, 5% on your self-assessed value, um, then you risk losing that property for a lower price than you would actually have wanted to sell for. You will suffer a loss um, and that loss is often greater than what you would have saved uh, from the taxation. On the other hand, if you're trying to maintain that property and you report uh, a value higher than what it actually is, 
the taxation mechanism ensures that uh, the 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 benefits of that are in a sense getting socialized the society as a whole is benefiting from the high value that someone has on maintaining personal ownership and control over that property and so the way i think of this is in a sense you're um creating a user fee um for the maintenance of property which uh in in our current model and in, in more classical models of thinking about property that just kind of assumed as a a natural state um is that a good kind of concrete summary of how this works in practice yeah um i think uh one thing that one can easily get misled about this is to think that the main entities that this would affect are quote, ordinary people or, quote, individuals. The reality is most wealth is held by either a very small number of very wealthy people or by, you know, corporate entities of various sorts. So the overwhelming burden of this sort of attacks would fall upon those who hold the most wealth. Um, and in fact, you could easily create versions of it that would exempt wealth up to some level. So, um, you know, in both now and probably in the long and, and term. And by, by wealth, you're talking about real estate, basically. Real then, estate. Not, not like money in the bank. No, but even money in the bank. What is money in the bank? I mean, money in the bank, you know, first of all, very few people who are wealthy hold a lot of literal money. Instead, they hold stocks, and those stocks are claims on corporations, and those corporations hold assets in the real world. So, um, ultimately, all these things are claims upon intellectual property, upon real estate, upon... Um, uh, spectrum rights upon other yeah, yeah, yeah. rights that exist to exclude other people from taking certain actions, rights which we we believe you know you should have to compensate others for the right to exclude them. Yeah, let let's explore this a bit more because uh, I I think this is something that well, this is when I discuss this concept this is one of the things that immediately comes up. Um, Henry George uh, originally, uh, you know, his famous single tax proposal, which was not quite the same as the mechanism you're talking about, but I think that there's been inspiration drawn from there. It was uh, essentially a tax on the ownership of land from the concept that land is, in a sense, given by nature and is inherently monopolistic. Uh, I, I think that that is something that people very easily can absorb. They can see the arguments for a Henry George style tax on land. Uh, expanding from that, um, you know, private property in, let's say, the sense that a Marxist would use that word, right, land and capital, um, especially large uh, collectivized uh, capital in, that's used in economies of scale. I, I think people can again kind of understand how this could be useful uh, my impression is, though, Glenn, you, you have a quite wide-ranging view of how this could be applied, uh, up to uh, almost ex what we would consider very personal forms of property, um, say, jewelry or, or heirlooms or uh, things of that nature. Can you explain a bit, uh, and you've started touching on this, but why, why would you see this as so expansive? And then I, I know that there's a couple... Um, possible lines of critique that we'd like to explore as well. But but first, maybe touch on why you're taking a more expansive view of, on the concept. So the first thing I would say is, look, I, I actually think it's a distraction to worry about those 
things in either direction because most the vast majority of wealth is not things like that. Personal property is something like 1% to 2% of aggregate wealth. So quantitatively and sort of uh, in terms of the spirit of what's going on, overwhelmingly what this actually touches on is the things that you were describing. Um, because that's just what most wealth, most wealth is. Right. Landed capital. Yeah. Decentralized so, exclusionary rights. Yeah, so we can talk about the other things if you want. But, you know, I think it's it would be very misleading for people to get the impression that that is anything other than quibbling over exactly where one draws the line in terms of, like, exemptions and attacks. Well, I, I think the way that people probably think of this is like, well, why should I risk, I don't know, my grandpa's wedding ring being bought out or something like that, right? It's essentially items with sentimentality attached, items, or or even, you know, you could think of maybe your, your, your cell phone. Uh, wouldn't it be weirdly inconvenient to, like, suddenly have someone buy your cell phone or something like that and then you have to give it away and get a new plan or something like this um yeah it i mean it, it is in a sense as you're saying quibbling but you could almost go either way on that right well in that case why not simply exempt these kinds of personal and, items from and, the whole and, system? and my point my point is precisely that if you feel like exempting those items from the system and you think that that's practicable you're going to get very little argument from me about that. I mean, sure. I, I happen to disagree, but I just don't think it makes any difference. Right. The, so, the bulk of the system is dealing with much larger yeah. forms of wealth. Okay. Um, I, I think, uh, so in, in either version of this, though, uh, we, we get into very interesting territory about the nature of property. And this is this is a topic that has been discussed throughout various systems of thought. I mean, uh, socialists discuss the, this, uh, liberals, um, I, you know, other Catholic social teaching discusses this, the relationship between property and actual value or, or productivity. Um, and th there's a long tradition of thought, I think, across various um, lenses, uh, which sees the ability to gain wealth from the mere kind of monopolistic uh, rent-seeking ability of property as somehow problematic. And my impression, and you do dis you discuss this in the book as well, is um, there's almost a socialization aspect that occurs here in the sense that uh, in a society where this mechanism became widely implemented and accepted and people, it changed how people started thinking about property um, it seems like the concept of property would become much more tied to use and productivity rather than simply holding on to an item of, of land or capital. Uh, my, my impression is that for you, this would be a, a feature and not a bug. Um, could, could you explain your thinking there? Yes, that's true. And I would also emphasize that I think that the book makes a mistake in thinking about the only loci either of property either being some very individual idea or some very collective idea. Um, and I think that's a mistake of Henry George as well. I think the reality is that things should, in a partial overlapping way, belong to a range of different communities between the individual and the cosmopole. Um, and that the reality of how the technology of, you know, salsa should be used is much 
more diverse and complex than the way that it's portrayed in the book. Um, it should probably be used to structure the relationship between all these different levels of community and diverse social organization that together create um, a complex world. So um, I, I think that, you know, property partially should belong to individuals who make investments and partially should belong to families that make investments and partially should belong to communities that make investments and partially should belong to software companies that make investments. And all of these should be sharing some share of this and that all those different entities having some share facilitates both the flowing of these to their best uses and um, rewards rewarding the levels at which values are actually created, which is almost never at the level of the isolated individual, as otherwise we'd live in a bunch of separate huts rather than in the cities and the networks that power our lives. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, one of the other uh, aspects of your, your thought that, as you say, you had, you're, you're kind of in the process of updating this, um, where public goods aren't disappearing from life. In a sense, public goods are begetting public goods. Yeah, actually, I would be I would be curious which uh, critiques you found to be most persuasive, or even lines of critique. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm about to write a critique of radical markets, and I think that um, at some level there's a little bit of a paradox in dealing with the critiques, which is that there's kind of some set of critiques that come from people who are quite sophisticated about economics and can really land things. And most of those I find generally just kind of sort of wrong or confused um, or just pointing in, in, in the, the wrong direction. And then there's a bunch of critiques from people who are outside and who don't really understand economics that well. And the critiques are sort of often a little bit misformulated or they don't quite land right. And yet I think they've got something very deep and important at the core of them. Um, and those tend to be critiques of what I think of as kind of the economism, technocracy, and individualism that are built into the book, despite the fact that if you take the book's conclusion seriously, you really have to critique those things. So the book sort of celebrates common ownership and public goods and things like this, and yet it's derived from a field of mechanism design, which takes every individual as completely separate and sort of atomized. And in fact, a lot of the mechanisms depend on that. So it's sort of internally inconsistent in that way. And it wants to see things experimented with and not imposed from the top down. We say that explicitly. And yet it's written in a language that is really inaccessible to anyone but technocratic elites, which makes it so that it's very likely to be implemented from the top down. So um, the book is, I think, um, an interesting working out of the ways in which economics is sort of inconsistent with itself, and yet the book suffers from the same problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm proud of some steps that it made, and uh, I think it's it's got a lot of issues. I mean, to be to be fair, uh, compared to some of the papers, say, on quadratic voting, I mean, I think the book simplifies a lot. I mean, it, you know, we're not doing equilibrium analysis or something in the book like I, I i think at least some of the examples are are like fairly comprehensible um just wanted to yeah and and we're we're uh the three of us are you know few men from upper social strata uh in wealthy countries 
you know, who have very particular sets of training that enables it to be comprehensible in that way to us. And um, that's a class that, you know, has more people in it than the class of economists who could read those papers do, maybe, you know, an order of magnitude or two. And it's still tiny relative to the broader uh, world that one would hope could really have ownership over these new, you know, ways of imagining social organization. I think this is a quite classic um, contradiction, though, in a way, isn't it? That it, And it occurs in both liberal revolutions and in more socialist revolutions, the, the tension between, in on the one hand, prizing uh, a, a collective and a pluralistic form of action. But when these reforms actually come through, um, it, it almost always occurs, um, may, maybe not necessarily top down the entire way through, although that can also occur, but at least it's a ripple effect where you have these, uh, you know, and, and this happened, I think, in the way that um, modern liberal and capitalist private property became institutionalized. Um, it, it was the result of certain classes in society uh, who changed institutional norms, um, often through political revolutions. And in a sense, then these other spheres of society, uh, uh, communities or uh, companies um, or, or townships, right, lower level forms of political organization, they would end up reconciling themselves or adopting these new norms that rippled out from uh, these very influential parts of society. Um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, in, in essence, any book on policy, right, as this is to an extent, almost seems to assume that, right, that this will be read by people who are ultimately going to be in positions to make those system level changes. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you're, you're talking, you have to be talking to the people by, by some means, you're talking to the people who are actually in control of those public goods, and that those public goods tend to be sort of captured by a particular class and a particular way of thinking. Yeah, so uh, that's right. Um, and I think if you want the sort of change that we're hoping to see, and you want it to be sustainable and to work, that can only be one, I think, actually relatively small component of your strategy. Um, Hannah Arendt, in her book on revolution, contrasts the American and French revolutions. And she points out that the American Revolution maintained the authority of King George as it was building up new forms of legitimacy in the form of local colonial democracy. And it only replaced the formal authority once the informal distribution of power and legitimacy was already there to take its place. Um, whereas the French Revolution said, no, let's chop off the head of the king, and then let's figure out what to do once we're there. Yeah, and... and yeah. Mm, go ahead. And uh, she, you know praises the American Revolution relative to the French Revolution um, for uh, this reason. Um, and, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for what she's arguing and believe that if you really want to make sustainable and lasting 
changes to these fundamental institutions, we need to learn to communicate them in a way that is not so elite driven. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm always suspicious uh, to an extent of the the myth, the post-revolutionary myth-making of any revolution. Um, I mean, I, I can certainly take the point uh, in, in the contrast there. But even in the American case, right, here where I am in Ontario, uh, one of the, 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 the founding currents of the population comes from the Loyalist population, which was essentially made up of, you know, uh, in, entire families and... and um, a huge group of people who are essentially forcibly expelled uh, from their land and forced to migrate upward into safe territory. So in, in any of these cases, um, I think I, I'm always interested in the actual historical mechanisms by way these political changes take place. And I think this is something um, you, you sort of made a comment uh, uh, where you talked about how you prefer to hang out now with sociologists and Uber drivers. And I kind of, I, I thought that was quite on point because certainly when I was studying economics on, you know, in, in university, I got the sense that really the historical and the sociological aspects of this were completely overlooked. I mean, to the extent that economic history courses exist, they're essentially considered like, um, you know, courses that you just take on the side. They're not really fundamental to learning, quote-unquote, proper economics. Uh, and this seemed like a mistake to me, but it was also baked into the culture of how you learned economics. And I think even the assumption that the professors who would teach those courses would have about them, they themselves would treat them as kind of, you know, this is your easy elective course. Um, I, I, and th this is a critique that is not new, in economics, I mean, even Marx um, is known for his critiques of the the vulgar economists, where he claimed that a lot of what what is now modern economic thought was essentially looking at certain institutions like private property um, and taking them for granted, making them ahistorical and just these prerequisites, rather than looking at how they objectively developed. But it's really when you get into the historical context. That I think you see a lot of what you're talking about, Glenn, which is the way that um, action in human societies, uh, be it because of because of material conditions or because of the action of certain classes in societies, how these economic institutions and the economic development that happens is the result of of the the, the human element that I think you're trying to highlight here. Yeah, and you know the example that you gave about Marx, uh, I think, is a perfect one here. Mechanism design, which obviously plays a significant role, it's a field of economics, um, in, in how I think about a lot of things, uh, is a perfect example of this. There's two, quote, technical, unquote, assumptions in mechanism design called individual rationality and a, another one called substitutes. Um, those sound like, you know, technical, obscure things. But in fact, individual rationality is the assumption that private property is absolute and can't be violated in any way. Um, and uh, substitutes is the assumption that there's no public goods uh, and no increasing returns. So those two assumptions already have baked into the whole thing, assuming away, I think, pretty much the whole problem of political economy and everything that's actually interesting about social design. Um, so, and, and yet they're pretty much ubiquitous in mechanism design. 
So that's an example where it's treating as, you know, given and historically fixed exactly the problem that the field should be trying to address. Uh, so one one brief thing I wanted to talk about relating to cost before we move on to, you know, talking to, about quadratic voting or, or radical exchange more generally is sort of like an, a non-economic uh, critique of cost as related to, to property, which is that uh, we might see uh, sort of like the, the kind of like tar- uh, the uh, collective uh, uh, organization uh, facilitated by the internet or other platforms being used in, in uh, targeted harassment of, of people in terms of whether it's their immediate personal property or or uh, like land or or something like that where people essentially uh, come up with a list of, of political enemies or maybe it's it's even less targeted than that. You see sometimes uh, mobs forming online just purely for fun. Um, and so what would be the, the cost answer to sort of like political harassment or, or even a case of would we want, you know, ig- total exemptions for various figures of state or as it relates to, to national security, I'm kind of curious. So, so the situation here, uh, just to be clear, you're bringing up is something like uh, y- you have a, a politician or, or a public figure and uh, like you have these, these, these mobs where, uh, you know, everyone donates money and it's essentially being used to like maliciously purchase away um, various forms of property. I'd love to be in that position because you could just do it over and over, and everything you touch would suddenly be <laughs> would suddenly be worth a lot of money. Yeah, I can't wait to have your house, Wolf. Well, I'll be glad to sell it, and then I'll sell you the next one too. Excellent. Yeah, so, so I actually think you raise a great point, which is that um, uh, I actually think that there are attacks under the present set of institutional arrangements that are probably cheaper for the attackers and less profitable for the defenders than would be the case under this uh, circumstance. Uh, so right now you can buy up all the land around someone's house and then they can't exit, right? Now, that's not literally right now because we have public rights of way and so forth, but presumably you would maintain those sorts of protections under this sort of a system um, as well. Uh, if you're the target of an attack and you raise the value of your properties and people buy them from you at a very high price, I don't know that that's the most damaging sort of an attack that you could possibly be subjected to. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and and in fact, someone was recently suggesting online that you should go around and buy up all the properties around Trump-owned buildings and build high skyscrapers there and block out the views of, you know, Trump towers and so forth. Um, so there are many attacks that are possible under present institutional arrangements that we take for granted. Um, and my feeling is, you know, I, I, I'm open to the notion that there may be worse attacks under a salsa slash cost system. I haven't really seen anyone show me that that's the case. Um, I mean, as far as yeah. crowdfunding is, is concerned, the difference between the current arrangement and the cost arrangement is that in the current arrangement, uh, the, the cost of negotiation is significantly higher for buying up uh, surrounding property uh, and cost as you know there's an example there are many examples given in the radical markets book uh, of 
maybe somewhat more ideal circumstances where you kind of pull up an app and look at the topographic information of a given area and then press go uh, and then you immediately you know there's a bank transfer and you know the people have a reasonable quote reasonable period of time to vacate the property uh, but but the the deal is done almost immediately which is somewhat different uh, and and less sort of like like in the current arrangement if you imagine this crowdfunding thing you'd have to appoint someone who has to kind of like do phone calls go door to door like try and do negotiation it's it's not a, a cost app that you just push the button and, and it hits go so i think the under cost the fact that there's way 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 less friction involved in the transaction makes these attacks much more likely well but on the other hand if any anyone who is aware of that would dramatically increase their price and then they would end up benefiting from the action that was being taken rather than being hurt by it only and if, only if they had sufficiently advanced notice of it i suppose well i mean so first of all they they would be vulnerable to an attack if they were valuing their property at under the price that they'd be willing to accept for it which they don't have an incentive to do unless they're deliberately trying to hide something or evade property taxes under the system so they would benefit from someone buying it out from under them and second, once they, if they do know, and if there was a crowdfunding campaign that was public like that, they almost certainly would know, then, then they would probably raise it even higher to take advantage of that campaign. Um, and furthermore, the case where that wouldn't happen is if a wealthy person was the one doing the buying out, so they didn't need to organize in such a public way. But when a wealthy person's doing it, cost is great because, you know, to deter that sort of a thing because it systematically expropriates the wealth of the wealthy and redistributes it more broadly throughout the population. So it makes it far easier for people to defend than for people to attack because those with large assemblies of wealth are constantly bleeding that wealth back to the rest of the population. I, I guess the aspect you mentioned was like administrative costs. So it, it's something like if you're moving out of your house, there are costs associated with that. Um, and I think, Glenn, you do, you do touch on this a bit in the book, but... Um, it strikes me just like on, on the system level, you can think of that as something like an externality. And, you know, as per any other externality, you find a way to bring that cost back onto the beneficiary. So, you know, maybe moving costs are covered or something like this. Um, you know, do you think of it in that sense? Or, or is there some other way that you approach this administrative costs of property transfer question? I mean, you can price that into the value that you'd be willing to sell for. Hmm, that's true. If you allow certain um, exemptions, whether for uh, specific classes of property or specific classes of, uh, you know, population, whether it's, you know, a national security exemption or something, would then you see an interesting return of you know, Soviet managerialism, if, if that's the word, the term I'm going to use, uh, re-entering into a system that's supposed to be entirely uh, decentralized and avoid, uh, you know, bureaucracies becoming uh, in, ingrained in the way that the system is run. So this is one reason why I'm not that sympathetic to certain types of exemption, because they require too much administration. Um, so... But, and again, I think this is all very distant and very 
speculative of exactly how you implement this on a complete society-wide level and would probably differ from the things in the book along many dimensions that are more important than precisely what's exempted or not, having to do with the structures of the communities that run all this stuff and so forth. So I personally find near-term applications to things like managing spectrum rights, managing web addresses, um, managing digital artworks, much more interesting than the speculation of the precise details of a system that won't exist for at least a couple decades and will probably involve many more elements than we can even envision at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, one notable thing about, about web addresses in particular is that uh, the extra property there, or, or element rather, or variable, is that uh, it, it performs an important uh, identity verification system in a way that, you know, someone's house does not, right? You go and, and knock on the door, and if they're there, they're, they're there or not, not. But you could imagine uh, cost leading to negative consequences on, on sites where malicious actors kind of quickly buy up the domain and, uh, you know, put up, you know, malware or something or, or fish for people's uh, bank account details or something. So it's I think part of the, with with at least web domains, one of the reasons why. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with the problem of, of people sitting on, on domains that they really shouldn't be uh, sitting on in the same way that patent trolls do this, right? It's, it's the same sort of thing, but web addresses are slightly different than, than you know, patent trolls in the sense that a lot of these uh, existing addresses you don't want to be costed because... Uh, you would have an issue with identity verification. I, I don't know if you have thoughts. So on that. I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't actually think that that's as much of a concern as it sounds like, because um, the usual problem is not that you have these incredibly wealthy black hats out there trying to do nefarious things. It's that you have a bunch of a very very large mass of not wealthy sort of trolls with time on their hands. Um, you know, these are the people who send spam emails and so forth. These are not large, wealthy corporations or something like that doing that. And those folks are not going to go around and get the capital together to buy out, like, well-established brands and things like this. They're much more likely to buy up stuff, the value of which has not yet been recognized, and sit on it and exploit the fact that there's no reasonable pricing there. So I think we're at the point in the show, um, we do also want to get to quadratic voting. Um, so we can obviously, you know, continue the, the discussion there quite a bit. But um, we want to shift. I do want to, uh, just before we do that, I think one of the interesting things of the Radical Markets book, Glenn, is that you, you return again and again to this broader idea of what a society looks like when it overcomes some of these current obstacles that you see as stifling things like innovation or how people generate or um, or able to collect wealth. Uh, I, I think it just might be interesting because you have said there are these other issues that you really see as key to what makes this approach to property useful. Maybe just take like 30 seconds or so before we move to quadratic voting and just sketch out for us a little. You know, let's say we have a society now where this approach to property has become ingrained, normalized, this is how things are done. What does that look like? Uh, you know, what, what in particular is different 
uh, in this world. Well, I, I think the core of it, to me, actually, is about how it interacts with democracy. I imagine there being organizations that are mostly owning properties, and these organizations are sort of um, democratically formed in some way, but the cost means that they decay um, and that their rights to exclude others from participation, rights analogous to, you know, blocks on migration or things like that, um, will cost them and will decay because they'll be bleeding the value that they use to exclude people. And I think that that creates a much more continuous version of the democratic principle that the dead hand of the past shouldn't forever persist than um, has existed in the past. Okay, so the, the stagnation that we see kind of cyclically occur is something that we could perhaps break up, bypass. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, I think we should move to the quadratic voting um, topic now. So this, uh, we've been discussing property. Here we get more into um, political and electoral problems, how collective decisions are made in, in, in the sphere of political institutions. Um, as before, why don't we start, Glenn, just give us an outline of quadratic voting, um, what is it? Why does it work? What problems should it overcome? So the idea of quadratic voting is that rather than um, participants in some collective decision-making process having one vote on every issue or candidate, instead they have a bank of credits that they can use to purchase, in some sense, influence, except that the cost is quadratic in the number of votes that they put in. So it becomes increasingly expensive to be strongly in favor of something or strongly against it. You could distribute these credits in an egalitarian manner, and in fact a lot of the theory goes into exactly the right ways of doing those types of things. Um, but the basic concept is to allow people to express how important things are to them, unlike in standard one person one vote, but to um, penalize extremism in a way that encourages people to vote as, in favor of things as strongly as, it, as the issue is important to them or they're knowledgeable about it, rather than to just um, pile everything into one thing that's a pet project. Um, and um, the idea of this is that, you know, standard democracy is people are rightly skeptical of uh, in many cases because it doesn't, it's very thin. It only accounts for directions rather than, uh, you know, both intensity and, and degrees of knowledge. And this has long led to tyrannies of the majority. Uh, you know, some people would say, you know, the rule of ignorance, etc. And the question is, is there an egalitarian and democratic way that we can overcome those problems so that we can apply democracy much more broadly? And I think that's really what quadratic voting tries to do. One, one thing uh, about quadratic voting that I found interesting uh, when briefly scanning over some people's criticisms of it was that, uh, like with cost, they immediately wanted to jump to, oh, the rich people would just buy up all the votes or the voice credits or something. But in this case, it makes even less, way, way, way less sense than under cost because it's the square of the number of votes, basically. And so it gets very, very expensive very quickly for not very many votes. And so I think instead... Uh, of vote buying, people would just, I mean, capital would just do what it already does, which is campaign donations, lobbying, agenda setting, and, and media. 
they don't need to waste under quadratic voting they don't need to bother wasting money and they wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for them to waste money on on vote buying even though they they technically could yeah and i think eventually uh it would go beyond that and you would um i would want to replace a lot of corporations with organizations that were sort of in a quadratically democratically governed sort of a fashion and in in that world um you know when you really think that quadratic voting is not just a means of um adjusting existing democratic institutions but a eventual replacement of current undemocratic institutions the sort of progressive and egalitarian capacity of it becomes much clearer well and this is a it's a counterintuitive part of this policy in a way because uh when we talk about money in politics, right, which is obviously a major issue, um, has been a few years, but again, in this current election uh, in the US, um, it's generally viewed in, in, in kind of there are a small set of people who are able to um, interact with the electoral system in this way. Uh, and we need to get that out. And whatever the arguments there, you're almost taking the flip side where um the problem is actually that uh being able to focus voice in this way the problem isn't that it occurs it's that actually there are too few people with this ability to push their their political efforts into certain issues that they feel strongly about and and, and i you know i think you mentioned in the book right the the, the relationship between like purchasing voice credits, say, in certain contexts, um, and, uh, you know, contrasting that with the way that people or, like, large companies, for example, now will, will like, quote-unquote, purchase voice by swaying voters through uh, marketing or lobbying or so on and so forth. Right. Actually, what I really liked about, in, in the book, the way that quadratic voting could be used to, you know, better approximate uh, people's positions on on traditional surveys because if you compare it to the kind of data you get from like a Likert scale uh, which is you know strongly uh, agree agree neutral disagree strongly disagree people have this tendency because it's totally costless to uh, hit strongly disagree or hit strongly agree and so the distribution of data you get is quite different from normal everyday decisions because in normal everyday decisions you can't escape the problem of having to economize and quadratic voting kind of forces you uh in making decisions to uh you you have to encounter the problem of of trade-offs and so that is one thing that i find interesting about quadratic voting in particular for survey data um as it relates to um, sort of like other issues. I, 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 you know, Wolf, you actually had some discussion about quadratic uh, voting and, and how it would interact with uh, existing uh, democratic institutions. I'd be curious if you wanted to, to go on that. Well, we, we were discussing earlier, quadratic voting, I mean, it, it basically leads to a higher quality or or higher fidelity kind of sample of what people actually care about or what the, the sort of uh, constituency actually cares about. Um, 
but there's this whole other set of problems in in sort of current democratic systems that it doesn't address, like the tendency for well, the, the fact of like giving everyone this this kind of like distributed power um, creates this huge incentive for uh, sort of media control of of people's thoughts on a large scale and and the weaponization of institutions towards those towards that end, which I think is is causing a lot of problems in in sort of like how news media works and how even academia works in terms of just the politicization of everything in terms of trying to control the narrative to ultimately control people's votes. Um, and then there's this sort of issues with uh, the way it sort of makes the it makes um, ruling coalitions unstable um, and I, whether that's like a, a good thing or not is one of these things that's debated but I think um, it it ends up being that because they are more unstable as a result of democracy uh, they put a lot more effort into um, like not necessarily just doing a good job but also kind of like uh, taking more action to, to cause trouble for their opposition to, uh, to do more like politically conflict oriented stuff rather than just, uh, doing what they would, would do otherwise. So I think there's certain issues there. Um, and so just stuff like that, like there's, there's a bunch of things that like quadratic voting doesn't address, uh, sort of about democracy itself. Well, I, I think that a, a more maybe a, a way to concretize um, some of these critiques that I, I've been thinking about um, as, as we were preparing for the show. Um, and it's similar to a critique that I have heard made of proportional representation voting, as opposed to the, the, the first past the post system that a lot of Anglosphere countries use, um, including Canada and the US, right? So first past the post, you're voting for a local individual uh right a, a congressperson or a member of parliament um there there are live debates that go on about moving to a proportional representation system and the idea is that this would diversify the the types of voices that are heard because you can have for example uh, a, a small party that maybe gets no more than 10 20 percent of the votes in any given district but then with the country as a whole, right, that's 10 to 20% of the population that essentially isn't heard. And, and this is one of the arguments that gets made. The counter argument that I've heard here is that in uh, representative bodies that have this kind of diversity of parties, what actually happens in practice, right, is that in most countries you have maybe two or three parties at most that are the really sizable ones. Um, and the way that you govern in this sort of assembly is by coalition building. And so what actually happens is that, um, A, leadership in parties is much harder to change. And then be because of the coalition mechanism, the parties that are actually in government end up being a quite stable um, coalition of people. So you see in Germany, of course, uh, Angela Merkel has been governing for quite a long time. And there, there are people to her right and people to her left who essentially have very little chance of ever um, changing that norm until until she's she's stepping down now. Um, I can see a similar critique of quadratic voting in the sense that, and I think you sort of 
presented it a, a little bit like this, Glenn. You know, you have people who are very strong on certain issues. Maybe you could even say that they're radical on certain issues, right? Um, say, I mean, let's take two examples, say gun rights or universal health care. Um, and in this way, they'd be able to concentrate their voices there. But the result of doing that is that it's very difficult for anyone but the kind of reconciling central leadership to um, kind of create a cohesive platform uh, for for taking power. Uh, the reason this is interesting to me in a way is because, uh, as we were talking about earlier, your own views come from uh, a tradition that is, is tr historically quite radical politically, um, was even radically revolutionary in, in a number of countries where, where it existed, especially, you know, 150 years ago or so. Um, it seems like if you're the person who is making the, you know, maybe you're able to take the voices of a few people on the fringes in and then, uh, you know, try and reconcile them. But, but if you're the person running, let's say, the political party here, um, or, or the, you know, the representative body, the parliament, the Congress, um, it seems like an effective way that those people can actually then maintain power be for the very fact that people on the fringes are not able to effectively coalition build as well. Um, and that might be great if, you know, if one actually believes that certain kinds of radical and systematic change are necessary, it seems like you might be less in favor of a quadratic voting system because your incentive is you want a coalition build. You want to have people with various opinions coming together and backing uh, new candidates. Um, I'd be interested to hear your response uh, to that objection. Um, so I agree that there is a centrist tendency of something like quadratic voting at some level because it makes very strong opinions costly. On the other hand, it allows for a more flexible expression when issues are of great importance to a small number of people that on those issues they get their way in exchange for giving up on many other things. So you're right, it will tend to eliminate systemic change. Uh, it, it, it will tend relative to, say, a system like the United States where you um, have, say, two parties, and so somehow if, like, someone gets a bare majority of one party and then that party gets a bare majority, then suddenly you can have these dramatic swings like you saw with Donald Trump. So that sort of thing becomes much harder in a quadratic voting system, as you were describing. On the other hand, I think that that is a quite haphazard way in which to filter out the few, a few issues where there's a strong reason to make large changes. Um, and I think a mechanism more like quadratic voting, where if it's really important to people, they're forced to pay for and give up on other things to make a difference on the thing that they care about, uh, is more likely to at once allow for big changes where they're very strongly justified and necessary and filter out ones that might be dangerous. So I think a good concrete example of this might be um, we could do a thought experiment here, right? Uh, say the, the Jim Crow era South. Now, historically, um, you know, where, where you had segregation and uh, racial issues, labor issues, 
the way that people would deal with this, um, you had particularly the labor movement, they would unite uh, a variety of people, right? Um, working class people, uh, like black people, and they would try and forge this coalition uh, in order to secure this broad spectrum of, of economic and political rights for the people they represented. Um, let's do a thought experiment here, right? Say that uh, Alabama uh, in, in the 1920s, the 1930s had implemented a quadratic voting system. Maybe sketch out a bit for us. How would this have, how could those same issues have been won within that sort of context? Well, I think uh, I am far from an expert on that particular period and that particular place in, in U.S. history. However, I think that many of the things that were most costly on African-Americans um, probably would have been harder to pass because a lot of, for example, poor whites were not actually very passionate about um, keeping blacks down and out and were very passionate about their own economic status. Um, and it was just that it was very easy to assemble a majority um, to keep blacks down and out, especially with a variety of vote suppression techniques and whatever, and how those interact with quadratic voting is more than I can uh, think through on sure. my feet. Um, but uh, my guess is that um, it would have been much easier to form the sort of original Republican coalition, uh, which was between um, basically poor blacks and poor whites, because poor blacks would care more about the racial issues and poor whites would care more about the economic issues than it would under a strict majoritarian system where it was just about counting to a majority. To shift gears uh, for, for a moment, what I'm interested in is now talking more about uh, the Radical Exchange Foundation specifically, um, and you know also the the work you guys are planning to do with with different chapters uh, and conferences. To to mention something about the conference briefly, um, you guys held a conference in in March uh, this year, I believe, in Detroit, which I attended, um, and I thought it was it was very high energy. Uh, the talks were excellent. Um, and the people were certainly more interesting than the people at Davos. Uh, <laughs> well, so I, I'm, I'm curious to tell me for you, for you to tell us about, about your plans uh, and, and everyone else's plans involved in the organization of, of where they would like things, things to go and, and how the chapters are supposed to develop and, and that sort of thing. Well, one thing to make clear is that um, I'm not in charge in any sense. Um, I am uh, uh, sure. I'm, I'm a board member. So the vision is going to be defined to a large extent by Jen Marone and Matt Pruitt, who are the CEO and president, respectively. But, um, that said, I think, you know, we're operating really on four dimensions. Um, activism in government, uh, entrepreneurship and technology, uh, ideas and research, and uh, the newly renamed environments and arts. And um, personally... I plan to prioritize um, the issues about environments and arts because I think it's absolutely critical that we um, 
learn to communicate about these things in a way that allow people to take ownership of them. I don't think that the uh, that for all the reasons we talked about up front, the top-down implementation in a technocratic way of these imagined as policies is going to get us to the world that we want, and it could you know potentially have quite bad effects. Um, we need it to be something that really belongs to the public, uh, conceived of in a very broad way. So um, we are putting great effort into building up new ways to communicate about these ideas. And that um, involves many people in a decentralized way getting involved. Um, uh, in all these chapters that you described, about 150 around the world, working with local governments, with legislators at different levels um, to stay involved and to figure out how to talk about and discuss these ideas. Um, and, uh, of course, also involving academics and in continuing to develop the ideas, involving all sorts of artists, communicators, um, creative people in trying to help people imagine what these worlds would be like and communicate about them. And it sounds like, uh, you know, the conversations we were having might have been uh, a bit abstract in some ways, but uh, these ideas, you are, in fact, speaking with people who are starting to find ways to implement them. I know with quadratic voting, uh, you had mentioned that uh, you, you had had some discussions with um, uh, p political figures, and there's actually real-world application of this happening. So maybe touch on that for us a bit. Yeah. The Colorado State Legislature's Democratic Caucus used quadratic voting to prioritize bills that ended up determining $40 million worth of spending that they did this year. So that's a quite tangible application, and they were quite pleased. They're planning to repeat it in the future, and they're working with Radical Exchange on a variety of other topics. Uh, we've been in conversations uh, in Canada, in fact, with the Canadian Conservative Party about a w wide range of applications of these ideas, um, uh, including leaders like Michelle Rempel um, from Calgary. So, um, yes, uh, in, in many parts of the world, we're working with a range of political leaders on uh, making these uh, ideas um, part of experiments and policy changes uh, that we both need to uh, keep hope in and restrain the worst tendencies of our current environment and also to experiment with new um, things that could replace it and that can involve uh, a, a wide variety of communities in building a different world. Are you focusing mainly on North America right now or are you looking uh, more, more abroad as well? No, um, I'm focused, we're focused uh, uh, quite broadly. I would say that probably half of the activities in North America, um, and then there's a lot in South America, actually, um, and uh, a reasonable amount in Europe. Our CEO is actually in Europe. Um, and uh, there's a growing amount in Asia as well. Um, Taiwan is a particular hot spot for this stuff. Uh, one of the ministers of the Taiwanese government is actually on our board. Okay, interesting. So I'm 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 curious. Uh, I know there there was a workshop at the conference on on world building, and I'm curious if you could uh, discuss some of that as it relates to uh, forwarding radical exchange ideas and uh, sort of like what work has been done up to this point or what work is is planned for the future in in the arts uh, in this area. 
Yeah, so I, I think there's a variety of work. I think it's some of the most important work that we're doing to help create cultural objects that don't privilege the viewpoint of the economist or the policymaker or the technocrat, but instead make these futures belong as much to um, people who see things from more of a narrative perspective or a perspective of imagination. Because the truth is that the formalized ideas and mechanisms and technologies, um, especially as they're built right now, can only get us some part of the way. Science fiction has always played a critical role in defining the future of technology and inviting people into it. Um, and I think it, it will do that here. Uh, I'm working increasingly with Jen Marone uh, and others on uh, what I'm tentatively calling the Marvel comic universe meets the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> which is trying to create a cultural object whose many vantage points and not privileging of elite perspectives actually mimics the politics that we want to create. You know, the Communist Manifesto and Capital were very elite documents, even though they sought to create a mass movement. And I think that's deeply problematic. I don't think your if your central documents are not accessible, that will be mirrored in the way that the movement actually gets created. You know, if if you don't make the Bible legible to the population, you will end up with a very hierarchical um religion. And uh, I think that's true of a political movement. If you want a genuinely democratic political movement, its central documents need to be widely accessible. And I think the Marvel Comics universe... As a Catholic, I feel attacked. <laughs> well, but the Catholic Church, in many ways, intended a hierarchical conception of the church. So if that's the intention, it fulfills that, right? Um, sure, sure. And, and so if, if we intend a non-hierarchical conception of this the this politics then that should be mirrored in the culture that it creates you know um, mm -hmm. uh i think on that note so we're just over an hour and a half in um if unless someone else had uh, an, another point they wanted to bring up uh i think we can probably wind down here for now um i radical markets is a massive book in terms of its breadth um each chapter is very approachable, but the number of topics covered, uh, things we didn't get to on the show, uh, it, 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 there's immigration, um, uh, the, the data as labor, yeah, and uh, the, the role of, for example, institutional investors in monopolistic power, um, which is something that really doesn't get touched on very much at all, um, even in spaces where these things are discussed. Um, the, you know, a, a number of topics that we could probably even have future shows on, um, but unfortunately don't have time for it now, but I highly recommend people read the book. Um, it is definitely one of the, the more interesting books I've read, uh, over the last year or so. Uh, so Glenn, I'm glad we had a chance to have you on and discuss some of this stuff and I hope we'll get to chat again soon. My pleasure.